So hello everybody and welcome back to Folk on Falcons. This week we'll review our fixture against Bath, look forward to a match against Wasps next weekend, go over the Six Nations, um, I'm going to have a bit of a rant about fly halves or kickers in general taking too long to line the points up, and then finally a review of um, the European Challenge Cup draw. As always you can find us on social media. Yep, so if you type in at Folk on Falcons on Facebook you'll see our picture. Um, on Twitter, it's exactly the same, of course, at Folk on Falcons. And if you'd like to send us an email, it's Folk on Falcons at mail.com. Thank you. So, could have been a very good way to start the weekend. A victory at lunchtime on Saturday would have been quite nice, but um, it kind of ruined it instead, didn't it? It wasn't really the, the fixture it could, perhaps could have been. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll get this out of the way. Um, it was absolutely crap. They were terrible. Um, it was the worst performance of the season so far. Um, I don't think anyone can sort of disagree with that. Everything which we thought could probably go wrong went wrong. Um, it, it was the same errors as has, as it has been in previous defeats. And it's as Richard said in his post-match comments, you know, I agree in that we weren't at the races, never turned up, and it was just really, really disappointing, unfortunately, in a game which we really should have been winning. As happened to Sale, we conceded two tries in the first ten minutes, and once you're chasing a game like that against quality premiership opposition, you're always going to be... You're always going to be on the back foot, and it, the tries that we gave them to start with, we very much gave them. It was we conceded a penalty, they hoofed it down to the corner, our line out fragments, and they score. And then we basically just did exactly the same thing, apart from we lost our own line out, which has been good until was started off good this season. And then once again, give away a penalty, and the same thing happened. Hoof it down the pitch, the line out in the corner, and we're we're twelve points down before we've. Uh, Basically, had a cup of tea cool down. Yeah, well, it's exactly like Sale, where we were conceding at a point in a minute. And again, like all these defeats, as you say, that they're points that we're just gifting. And they're really, really stupid gifts as well. Completely needless, unforced errors, unforced penalties, often when we're in possession. And how do you stop that? I mean, if you're, if you're the, the coaching staff, like, how do you stop that each week? Because it is recurring alarmingly regularly now. Even against Harlequins, I mean, it was happening. And it, it's, it's hammering us because, you know, it's, it's hard enough chasing a game against any team when you're 12 points down after 12 minutes. But against a, a, a decent team like Bath, especially... Um, and considering the defeated squad we had out, and we'd come off the back of this point defeat, it's it's the odds are going to be massively against us from the start. And then, of course, that leads to further frustration, and you're trying to force things, which leads to further unforced errors and penalties. It's just a sort of you know a cycle to defeat, and they have to stop it because otherwise we're just going to go, unfortunately, crashing down the league. Yeah, you've mentioned briefly there the depleted squad um, to lose both your halfbacks and Mupola morning or even before the game, it doesn't set you in good stead. And I'm wondering whether that had an impact on the way we played, because I think if you had 100 people and asked them all what was Falcon's strategy, you might get 100 different answers, because it didn't look like we were going to shove it up the jumper like we did against Bath the first game of the season. It didn't look like we were going to kick it deep and play the territory game. It didn't look like we were going to try and get it out to the wings, although Carrera had a good game. Um, It just looked like we... Didn't have any strategy. Um, Toby Flood um, was on the co-commentary on BT Sports once I actually left the volume on at a reasonable volume. And he kind of summed it up in the last 10 minutes. Um, you can't win the game if you keep kicking the ball away, is what he said. We've been saying that all season, and it's very interesting that Toby Flood sitting in the commentary box says that. Is, does that mean that 
for the entire season they've been kicking the ball away without being told to or is it that he's now trying to put a different hat on when he's sitting in the commentary booth or is he trying to throw some red herrings to the other uh, people that might be listening but it was very very strange I just felt like we were completely at six and sevens of the whole game yeah well I mean if you get with teams you know sometimes teams play a certain style or a certain way of playing it and no matter who the personnel is they kind of try and play that style or you get teams that kind of play to the personnel that are available to them or whatever style is best for those personnel um, at the start of the season it was definitely the latter for us which worked so as you say it was very much based off really organized solid defense really really good set piece and that's i mean that's how we would get the points. And occasionally, you know, you have a Radwan or a Stevenson sort of break away when those opportunities present themselves. But with the, possibly because of the different, the enforced different personnel, that sort of seems to have gone out the window. And it was, unfortunately, it just kind of looked like the relegation season where you would watch those games and you would have sort of have no idea what our sort of game plan is or, or you know, what, what we're trying to do or, you know, sort of what's our sort of process for, for, for during the match. There just didn't seem to be anything there. And it's, it seems to be the same here where the, the enforced personnel has kind of disrupted that, both in terms of the quality of the play because and because of the players, but also the, the, the way the team plays seems to sort of it's that sort of had a negative impact on it. And I think we've just got to hope that some of the players you have mentioned and other players, such as you know your Fuzers, your Radwans, your Stevensons, I mean there's a whole raft of suddenly out can come back in and really kind of strengthen us so we can start picking up points again. It's incredibly frustrating because obviously we've mentioned the fact that we kind of gifted them the 12 points in the first 10 minutes, but the last 10 minutes they scored again. But for the middle hour, we actually scored more points than them, and we won the middle hour of the match. But if I try and think back on what did Bath do exceptionally, did they light, light the game up at all? They had a couple of breaks, but that was largely because, once again, we failed to tackle one-on-one, particularly running at pace out wide. But Bath didn't play particularly well, and they ended up scoring 38 points. I feel like we've played against better opposition this season, who have really scrapped and ended up losing, whereas this time Bath played all right, but they scored five or six tries. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's a characteristic of a team which is just playing poorly, in that the opposition doesn't have to play well to, to beat you. I mean, as you say, Bath were nothing special. Yes, their forwards are very good. Yes, I thought, you know, your Underhill and Mercers were very good and they had a very, very strong set piece in the mall. But, you know, they weren't exceptional. They weren't tearing us to shreds or you know, they weren't, it wasn't a case they dominated for the whole game. But they didn't need to, to, to score six tries against us. And I'll say that's very much a characteristic of a team which is, isn't playing well. And also it just shows that we kind of just have ourselves to blame because even when I think we were starting to get grips with it in the second half, um, you know, we, we would have line-outs again, didn't we, down there, and we would lose them, where, of course, they won their line-outs, and they just scored from them each time, and that that's the difference. I mean, it's just the basics like that. I'm not saying that we would score after every single, you know, successful line-out, but if, if you don't catch your own line-out, you're not going to have the chance to do that, are you? Yeah, and then one other thing, I think I might start calling it the Falcon Special. We we spent ten minutes trying to score a try, score a try, get five or seven points, then from the kickoff we concede a penalty, and suddenly our five or seven points is now two or four. And if you give a team a 12-point head start, you can't be doing the Falcon specials and giving away scoring opportunities as soon as you've scored a try yourself because you don't get back into a game like that. You just end up chasing it, but you've got less time to claw back the points. And we, we did it in the first half, and then um, we just seem not to go to field kickoffs. Like there was the one with Alex Tate, and Alex Tate is normally a very, very reliable player, but he didn't get a shout 
it's very hard when you're lining a ball up coming from height and you don't quite know where the touchline is. And that's why there needs to be communication on the pitch saying, someone saying, Alex or Tatey, leave it, or something like that. And then he can just let it float into touch and we get a scrum on halfway. Or he can look down, put his feet in touch, catch the ball from within touch, and then once again scrum back at halfway. But it seemed like there wasn't that shout. He got caught in two minds, carried the ball into touch. I'd, I'd, and also, I don't actually know why Alex Tate was playing at wing, not at fullback, because for me, fullback is the position that you'd normally say Alex Tate plays. He's not got the pace for a winger, as far as I'm concerned. But at fullback, I feel that he's one of the most experienced fullbacks in the league. He always gets angles worked out. He's strong under the high ball and he doesn't really make mistakes. Whereas I think that Penny, yes, he's got the pace, but he's still very much learning it. And I'd say that most matches with Penny at fullback, he has some good glimmers of uh, play, but then at the same time, you're always kind of worrying in the back of your mind, just going to fumble it. And there was a couple where it just he let it go through him or it bounced around a bit when he should have fielded a relatively simple high ball. Well, I think a, a couple of points there. I mean, in terms of vulnerability from kickoffs, I don't know if it's also a case of other teams to identify that because, I mean, Callum Trick was guilty of it this weekend and against Sale where caught the ball, obviously went forward of it, isolated, and then, you know, penalty. And that's not just him, that's obviously happened several times as we've spoken. But um, I guess also the worrying thing is, of course, he was captain as well. Um, but... Yeah, it seems to me when when players do catch it, then they do go. They always you always seem to get the impression that they're, they're struggling or they're going to be isolated or the support isn't there, and you, it never looks clean or quick and it, or, or secure. Um, and I don't maybe that is credit to the opposition who maybe identify that as a weakness because you've got people like your Underhills and whatever come up really quickly and cause a lot of problems straight from the kickoff they charge up they they identify with slow sport or whatever and they take advantage of that. So maybe it's both of those things, but oh, it's, it's something absolutely basic obviously we've got to address because otherwise I just can't see how we're going to win games if you just as you say can see points straight from the kickoff. Um with regards to Tate I wonder if it's simply because they maybe think he's stronger than the tackle on the wing and perhaps obviously we've identified that problem there and maybe they have um, and perhaps Penny is doing well at fullback so they didn't want to change that too much as, as well as all the, other cha- all the other changes I don't know but I have to admit I was surprised also to see him on the wing Yeah, if we go back to the nature of the penalties we get, give away at um, kickoffs, they do vary in nature but what I find quite often is that opponents kick the ball relatively central to us about halfway between the 10 metre line and 22 and our inclination seems to be for whoever captures it to run infield away from their supporting forwards so you end up with basically nobody on the open side um, the backs all fan out and you don't end up with anybody in the ruck kind of sealing it off from the open side and we're getting isolated whereas a lot of players that um, catch the ball they run basically through the middle of their pack into the opponents and therefore you set the ball up and you've already got four or five men over you before you can blink and yeah, as we've said, it might be that Tate's uh, tackling on the wing is better, but like we've also said, uh, we just keep falling off tackles at the minute. And the, the breaks that Bath made weren't through wonderful sidestepping or fantastic plays, brilliant lines. It was just from us not being able to tackle one-on-one, falling off them. Sometimes it looks like you're going to tackle them for all the world, then the player just kind of lets go and falls on the floor, and then we're 20, 30 yards further down the pitch. If we try and take some positives from the game, can you think of any? I can think of one, but um, I'll see if you think of the same one or anything else. Struggling. Um, 
I mean, it, Carreras looked good. It was nice to have him, for him to have a run out. And obviously, when he got the ball, I think the highlights of the game for us was probably when he made a lot of really good runs. It was pretty unfortunate not to collect one of his own kick moves for the try. Obviously, create the try almost single-handedly to get us back in the game um, in the first half. I think he was only bright spark. Um, so means some interesting questions to be asked about who plays regularly on the wing, I suppose. Yeah, bingo, got it in one. That was the only thing that I could think of in that match that um, I'd say was a good sign it was, his, it was his first proper run at it and um, I think he, he showed us why he's a seven specialist because when there's half a yard of space he certainly uses it interesting when you talked about the one where he um, kicked ahead and chased it um, I noticed he wasn't actually that quick in a straight line he wasn't like the Radwan or Stevenson speed um, he was being outpaced by a couple of Baths players there so he's obviously very agile and still very quick but he doesn't have the outright gas that Iradwan does um, seems like he's much better when there's a, a broken play in front of him and he can be incisive and cut through a few forwards or straggling defenders who aren't really that well organised I mean maybe that's just sort of his body shape and time isn't he because obviously he's sort of a small dark little player where I guess if you're against pretty tall backs like Yukoka Singers and Josephs or whatever I guess if they've got a head start their long legs I guess may, may sort of do it. Um, but yeah, he's obviously a different sort of type of player to, to your Radwan. I mean, Radwan's obviously quite relatively like short and stocky, isn't he? Like pure power, pure sort of straight line speed. You don't really see him sort of sidestepping. It's more just give him a couple of yards of pace. Sorry, give him a couple of yards of space and he's off. Where Carreras is very much sort of a, I'd say, sort of a tricky, darty little winger um, who in certain situations is obviously going to be, I guess, more effective. So, but yeah, I mean, it. If, I guess if, if Carreras does continue to play because of injuries and he does continue to perform well, I mean, I guess it does bring up an interesting question about who you start each week. I suppose he's only on loan, if essentially, isn't he, uh, from Paguara? So, I mean, maybe some questions about, well, do you want to continually play a player who's only on loan when you want to develop, say, your teams in the red ones? But yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting question, that one. Moving on to next, next week against Wasps. Still got the internationals out. It's on Friday night. Um, it's on BT Sport. And I think it's a, it's a quarter to eight kickoff. Want to sit down with the fish and chips too. Do we think we'll beat them again? Or do we think it might be a, a repeat of Bath where we, we scraped a win the first game of the season by shoving up the jumper and then this time we might not be able to do the same? I think if it's the same team as this weekend, no. Um, I think if, if we do get some of our starting players back, then possibly yes. I mean, Wasps aren't doing particularly well at the moment, but... Neither were Bath. I mean, that's what's so disappointing. I mean, I mentioned that if we wanted to sort of keep up momentum at the top half of the table and to keep pace, then these were two absolute must-win games in order to do that. Because if you're going to finish in the top six, naturally you've got to beat the teams below and around you to, in order to do that. Already lost to Bath. Um, losing the Wasps, I do unfortunately think that it could be the end of the season for us, really, in terms of trying to compete for, for the top half. And it may just be a case of let's just sort of see what we can do as best we can for the remainder of the season. So I think it is really a season-defining, because if we beat Wasp, then yes, but I guess it's not really in our hands, but we're still in the sort of mix, and it's a be a nice win against what are a decent team, if even if they're not in great form at the moment. But I think if we lose that, it's just... I think the season threatens to turn to a bit of a damn squib, really. Yeah, um, it started off so promisingly, but as well... On to when we do the league lineup, it is starting to open up in the middle of the table. And at the minute, we are just about within touching distance. But um, yeah, another one or two weeks if we 
don't get anything from the games I think we're going to be it looks like we said cheerio to the top four by now and we might be looking the same way about the top six as well but that does open up the opportunity of things getting slightly more interesting when it comes to Europe because there's no relegation this season if we can't get the Heineken Cup by finishing top six is it worth having a real go at a real go at um, the European tournament I mean you'd think so uh, it's a chance it's some Considering the draw, considering the teams in the competition, um, no reason why if we don't play a strong team, why we can't go somewhere in it. I mean, with, with, with every defeat in the league and with every, well, zero points, it's looking increasingly likely to be the only way to get into the Heineken Cup. And let's face it, this season with no relegation, obviously we're not going to win the league, that is the absolute number one goal for this season, I would have thought still. And in order, if that has to be done through the Challenge Cup, then, then so be it. Um, and without the threat of relegation, then I can't see why we can't prioritize. I mean, be maybe a little controversial. I'm sure lots will disagree, but I'm more inclined to sort of go all, all out for the Challenge Cup and sort of almost, if it gets to a stage where we can't obviously compete in the top six, disregard the league. I mean, we're not well. I mean, not like to finish bottom, but it doesn't really matter where we finish between seventh and twelfth this season. So well, why not actually go for the competition where? You know, there's still something at stake. So I think so. I think we really have to have a go at it. But, I mean, the club teams have a policy, which is fair enough, and I think Richard kind of goes through that policy in which we play weakened teams to give squad players a run out in, in Europe. I mean, even a couple of years ago, when we, when we finished fourth, and we got the same final of the Challenge Cup away to Gloucester, we played a weakened team. The idea was obviously to try and cement top four, even though I think by that stage we'd pretty much had. Um, so I kind of disagreed with what was the selection of a much weakened team against what was a very, very strong Gloucester team. And we were absolutely put to the sword that night. Obviously, you went to that night. Um, and that was a real miss opportunity, because that was a really good chance to not only finish fourth that season, but to actually win a cup, which I think, I can't remember if the final was against, against a uh, French team perhaps was it but it was very winnable especially in the form we were in and I thought that was disappointing so I wouldn't like to miss an opportunity like that again yeah that was one of the most frustrating evenings I've had as a Falcons fan I, my, my brother lives over near Bristol and I um, spent the spent the weekend over with him and uh, got there and got to his house on the Friday evening we drove up to Gloucester and um, abandoned the car had a pint got some fish and chips walked into the ground and Basically, as soon as the team sheet was read out, and then the, you heard the Gloucester team sheet get read out, you just thought, uh-oh. And then um, then I found out Avicii had died, because it was that evening. And then kickoff happened, and within like, within the first few few moments of the match, you thought, we're going to get thoroughly outclassed here. And sure enough, we were. Um, it was quite disappointing, because we'd, we'd had a good go at the, the previous rounds of the Challenge Cup that year. And then it just seemed like we got to the semi-final, and we thought, right, we're, we're not going to play any of the big boys, we're going to focus on finishing the top four in the league, which I, I which I understood, but at that point we pretty much got to within the top four anyway. Um I think we needed to get one victory out of the last two or three games to definitely guarantee it. But um very very frustrating and I was quite looking forward to um me and my brother were chatting about how we we're gonna book our flights to I think it was in Santander or somewhere in Spain, the final. It was looked like it would be quite a fun weekend away, but never happened. And then to top it all off the um the roads were closed going out of lost a lot of roadworks and we ended up having to drive back down to Bristol via um, East Wales and then over the seven which added on about 45 minutes of the journey it was just a thoroughly disappointing evening <laughs> yeah probably glad I, I've listened out on the radio but yeah I'm glad I didn't make the long trip down for that one Gah. if we just look at the, the draw for 
our our route to Marseille, let's call it. We start off, we've got Ospreys away, and that one's on the 2nd of April. Following that, we play Leicester or Connett, and then following that, we'll end up in the semi-finals, and by that point, it gets pretty tricky to work out who you're meant to be playing. Um, it is worth noting that you've got uh, Montpellier and again in the same half of the draw. could be very interesting if COVID, etc., the French um, pull up the drawbridge again because they clearly have made the case that club rugby is not a valid reason for going in and out of France as a Brit. Therefore, depending on how things carry on in those parts of the world, they might just think, oh, well, everyone in Britain's been vaccinated by then, we're going to be screwed, whatever the case. Or they might still stick with this policy of we're not going to let the British people come in or go out. So it could be interesting how that one materialises in due course. They might have shoved the French teams in the same side of the draw on purpose, I don't know. Let's just uh, see how that one pans out. But they're, they're, they're very winnable games. Ospreys aren't doing terribly well domestically. And Leicester and Connaught aren't either. Um, and we're kind of in the position where those teams domestically are all realistically within touching distance of qualifying by rights. So therefore they may play weakened teams. And if we set our minds about it, we, we could progress quite well into the semi-finals. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, they're all really winnable games. Obviously, I suppose, depending on how strong our team is, there's nothing to be phased about there at all. You know, I guess that's the thing about the Challenge Cup. You don't play the absolute top teams. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of, well, it is within our hands. If we play a decent side, if we sort of, you know, pull our socks up a bit and kind of get to the sort of performances we were doing at the start of the season, then, you know, absolutely no reason why we can't go pretty far in this competition. Uh, you know, it'd be nice because we haven't had a sniff of any sort of silverware. In fact, I think it's 10 years ago to the weekend um, where we had that very, very forgettable LV Cup final at Franklin's Gardens in 2011. Um, some of you obviously may well remember that, or some of you may have actually gone. We went on the coach, didn't we? Um, a really, really long coach ran at Northampton to watch what was absolutely a dreadful performance that just didn't turn up. I think there was about 10 Falcon supporters, about 20,000 Gloucester supporters, and the score was pretty much similar. And it was <laughs> probably the most forgettable, disappointing cup final day I think possibly we'll ever have in our lives. Yeah, I remember arriving at Kingston Park at about 6am. Well, my, my previous memory of cup finals was kind of the Technies Bitter Cup final when there were hordes and hordes and coaches all lined up in the car park and turned up there and there must be two or three buses lined up and um, your ragtag of fans battered by Gloucester. I think we scored seven points and they scored about 50 or something like that. We're never in the game. And then get the bus back. <laughs> what a terrible afternoon that was. Absolutely awful, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, because uh, I mean, obviously we all remember the the two cup final wins at Twickenham, and even I mean, I remember, and many of us obviously remember even the defeat against Wasps. I mean, the whole point was the fact that it was a day out in Twickenham, no matter what. But you know, to have your your crummy LV Cup final in crummy sort of Franklin's Gardens, I mean, it's a nice enough club ground, but it's hardly hardly Twickenham, is it? But I mean, a little bit off track. But my point is, is that you know, it's been ten years since we've had a. You know, any sort of real sniff. I guess there was that semi-final at Gloucester, but to, to have the, the chance to go to a cup final, I mean, well, why not? I mean, let, let, let's kind of have a have a moment to to enjoy. Um, not many as Falcons fans, but this this is as, as good as opportunity, I think, for well, for a very long time. So, you know, let's have a good go at it and see what happens. What's actually really sad thinking about it is that those Tetley Smith Cup finals are never going to happen again now in England because. It used to be the, the pinnacle of rugby. Um, you had the, the, the league would go, go ahead and then you had the cup. 
And obviously we, we had the victory against Harlequins and also the one against Sale where the one against Harlequins is fantastic. Twickenham must have been pretty much a sellout. It was full of people f- from Newcastle and then the Harlequins players, or fans, sorry, that decided to walk over the road. But then the one against Sale, it was maybe half to three quarters full. It certainly wasn't packed like it was the previous time. And then with them having these uh, playoffs for the Premiership title, which I actually loathe, that's kind of become the cup final, as opposed to the proper cup, which was such a brilliant day out that's probably never going to happen again. Well, I mean, what did it was was the the fallout the Welsh clubs had with with their the Celtic counterparts, wasn't it? Because they they fell out in terms of them for their cup competition. So. For whatever reason, I can't remember now, they, obviously the RFU let them join the English one, but instead of just having the, the knockouts that they used to do, um, I mean, the, the probably most famous one is in, in 2004, obviously in the semi-final, in the quarter-final, where pretend bees beat wasps, and then of course we played pretend bees in the semi-final. I mean, that was, that was, you know, we talk we hear about it in football, the FA Cup, but that really was the magic of, of the Cup, of the, of the Technique Cup, Paragen Cup, where they just killed that because they let the Welsh play, the, the Welsh clubs in, and it wasn't even the case of, oh yes, you have to do the knockout stages like all the other clubs, they just turned into those groups, didn't they? And it was just, it, that's where it just became a top flight only competition. Um, and teams never really, it was never the same, never had the same sort of magic or fun to it. And then they, they che- I think the real killer was that they stopped having it, the finals, because uh, your Twickenham's and even, I think they did have them at Millennium Stadium occasionally. Um, and they, they just stopped having them there. They, for, I went to say money or whatever the reason was, and they just moved it to, to, your, to your club grounds, which, you know, you go to every week and where's the, the fun and excitement, all that. And I think all that culminates in just the, the competition just being sort of relegated to sort of a minor sort of squad competition, really, than the a main piece of silverware that clubs would really go all out for. Yeah, it's kind of, they destroyed it through the back door. I can't remember anyone, any point in time saying, hang on a second, this isn't the direction we want to go in. I know that if we look back, a lot of the people kind of supporting the move would say, oh, clubs weren't taking it seriously. There's too much of a gulf between the leagues. But as it showed last weekend, that Cornish Pirates turning over Saracens, that yes, there is a gulf, but it is not unassailable. And if you have a, a championship team that's really, really up for it, then why not give, give them a good stab at it against a premiership outfit who'll probably play a weakened squad? I don't know, I just think it's a shame and we'll never get it back the way that rugby is now. It's all about money and whatever else and you just won't get it, unfortunately. Focusing on a different tournament entirely, Six Nations, finally England managed to put a performance together. I still don't think it was wonderful, but we have to consider we're playing a very strong French outfit and we managed to managed to put it away. What were your particular highlights or things of note? Well, I mean, after 80 seconds... Um, obviously you thought, oh, here we go again, it's a slaughter. Um, but, I mean, the, the French, especially in that, well, yeah, especially that first 80 seconds were absolutely, like, incredible. Uh, the, the difference was in just how quickly they play. Everything is so fast and quick, and the, the defence never gets any time to set, and Dupont is exceptional, and is, is so quick at the breakdown, and the, and the base of it, and all the rooks, and the balls flung out really quickly, they're really skillful through the hands, and it's just almost unplayable at times. Um, I mean, that was probably the, those few phases before the first try, I mean, they scored an exceptional try later on, but that, the first try, I was thinking, like, that's incredible. We're going to be torn to, to ribbons here. Um, and the French really do have something going on there. Um, in terms of England, yeah, I mean, it was better. I mean, I have to admit, 
even it was a really it was a solid win against a very good French side, you know, I can't be that excited about it because for us it was a dead rubber, apart from the fact, well, you know, we beat the French who were a good team. Penalty count was obviously better, not fantastic. Still issues about unforced errors when they're in good positions. But yeah, I mean I think we're having a very different conversation if they'd lost. If they'd lost, we would have been said, Well yes it was better, but look it's the same result. You know, we've lost to France for the first time in whatever how many years is at home. The fact they obviously won at the end it turns it round and now we're talking about well yeah it was better not great but you know we'd be a very good French side and may- maybe we're sort of getting back on track but I think Ireland would be a very good test actually against because obviously we're going into a game where potentially we're favourites because we always seem to do well where we're going into games where perhaps we're not favourites when the pressure's off so we'll see what happens next week uh, but yeah, if we focus on Mark Wilson for a second, I think that once again he put an absolute workhorse for performance. And when he was su- substituted in the 60 something minute, he was the top tackler on the pitch, which I think sums it up. Um, you never see much positive press about him, but then you never see any negative press. It just seems that he kind of doesn't exist as far as the pundits are um, concerned because he does so much unseen work, which is, which is quite frustrating. But um, I think that he's once again justified his selection and shown that he's one of the best back rowers in the country. Well, I suppose he's not fashionable in terms of sort of his personality or in terms of who he plays for, unfortunately, as we're all aware, perhaps. Um, But yeah, no, he was very good. Um, Yeah, I thought the forwards in general were, were much better and I think the change in selection did work. I think I think you know you have to give some credit. I suppose it didn't work far too little too late. And I think actually the Saracens players when they did play actually were better this time, probably because you know they've had a bit more game time, or maybe maybe because they sort they've been sort of given the kick up the backside in being dropped. They sort of think, well, well, you know, I'm not undroppable. Maybe I do have to sort of pull my finger out a bit. But yeah, as I say, it's I think next week's going to be the real litmus test because Ireland are very much beatable. If we play like against France, I think we probably will beat Ireland because Ireland aren't as good as France. But it's you know it's a game where if we're going to be favourites, are we just going to implode like we have done before? What's the selection going to be like? Is he going to put those Saracens players like? Are they going to sort of step up? I think I suppose you know we can enjoy it at least that win, even if at the end it's many ways unfortunately a bit meaningless. Yeah, um, next weekend we've kind of got a cup final for the Six Nations in a weird way because Wales v France. If Wales win it, then they win the Six Nations the Grand Slam somehow they've managed to pull that off if France win it then they've then got to play against Scotland and if I'm honest I think that you know what the French like they can throw it away at a moment's notice but I think this French team if they, if they win against Wales then they win against Scotland and I think it comes down to bonus points but I think that France will have enough in hand to, to see themselves over but um, I also have noticed that they haven't actually scheduled the France-Scotland match yet I've got a, a hunch that if Wales win against France next weekend, they might just abandon that um, France-Scotland match. They'll just have a Six Nations tournament where two of the teams play a game less because it's not going to materially affect anything. Um, there aren't, as far as I'm aware, there's not prize money separation for where you finish in the tournament. Um, you've obviously got the winners, which will be sewn up by the Grand Slam, and you'll need the players released by their clubs for next week and it's kind of easy enough for um, Edinburgh and Glasgow to do it because Scottish RFU basically owns those clubs but then half the Scottish team play in England and then the French team pretty much all play in France and you're not going to want all these clubs teams suddenly releasing their players for an extra weekend for a match that's pointless and the players could potentially pick up serious injuries. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I guess literally the only thing in that situation that would be at stake is maybe world ranking points but I don't think that's enough to 
as, as you said, I think mean, that's enough when you have all the other side of it to really outweigh the fact that it probably won't be played. But we'll have to see. I mean, maybe there's sort of contractual rights in terms of television and advertising and whatnot where they do have to play it, but we'll have to see, I think. But I think there's good ground for it not to be played, if, as you say, if, if Wales do win it. I guess with there being no fans or anything like that, it's probably about as easy as it gets to cancel a game in the modern era. Um, because it's not like you suddenly have to refund a load of tickets or you've got a hundred disgruntled fans that have got hotels booked for somewhere. They can just say, no, nah, it's not happening, and it's kind of relatively easy to to just put a rerun of EastEnders or something on instead of the rugby that weekend. It's quite easy just to fill that slot on the TV, guys, and that's all that will be really damaged by it. Yeah, um, though I do think that actually... I. I think France will win it. I do. I think I still think France is actually the best team in the tournament. Um, I, I just sort of think that Wales's luck must come to an end at some point. I mean, I, I can't really blame them. I mean, yes, I mean you have that first half against England, but it's not kind of their fault. Other teams have sort of shot themselves in the foot against them. You know, you play what's in front of you. I, I think you know, if France beat Wales, I, I do. You would think on paper, I think France would probably win that. And I think if if they do sort of kind of like hurriedly schedule a France v Scotland game, you know, how prepared and up for it is Scotland going to be when you're a France knowing if they, if they win or if they need a bonus point win, that will win them the Six Nations and they'll obviously go all out for it and I would expect them to win anyway as they're, they're probably a better team. But yeah, I mean, I guess we'll just have to see what happens but yeah, raises some interesting questions, doesn't it, in terms of how this, how this Six Nations is going to end, really. It could have ended up very much differently because Scotland today gave Ireland a, a big run for their money and if Scotland had pipped it at the end they, they could have scored a, a, a fourth try for a bonus point very easily today and that would have then meant that Scotland are going to batter Italy next weekend as everyone seems to that it would have then become Scotland v France for the potential first place because at that point you'd end up with potentially three teams all finishing up winning uh, three or four games as it happens Sexton kicks a penalty and Ireland win by three points but something I'd like to just mention that's been getting on my nerves for a number of years and Sexton today was at it again the only kick which he kicked his penalty within 60 seconds of nominating the posts was his first one from about 5 metres out slap bang in front of the posts all of the others he was taking 70 odd 80 odd seconds to kick it and the rule states that from nominating the posts you've got 60 seconds to kick the ball. And the law's pretty explicit. They've definitely got the ability to police it, even if it's just a video ref. But there seems to be just this ability for players to run the clock down with relative ease, which Sexton was blatantly doing. And there's no urgency. Why doesn't the referee just say, sorry, 60 seconds is up. Right, scrum to Scotland. Or why do, if, if they're not going to police the law, fine. Just make an amendment whereby the clock stops wants the post to be nominated until the player kicks it. Because otherwise you're in a situation where every match... If you think of the, the, the um, matches over the course of the situation, so there's probably been seven or eight kicks at goal at least um, during these matches. And that suddenly becomes 10% of the playing time. It's getting wasted by looking at some fly half stroking his hair like Dan Bigger does or Owen Farrell looking at the posts like a demented madman or Johnny Sexton just kind of lining the ball up six times because he couldn't get it right the first five. So what's the paying public spending their time looking at this for? And they could just say, right, get the pot of sand on like they used to in the olden days, give it a good hoof and get on with it. Uh, Well, I I guess um, it's one of these things which I think every sort of fan acknowledges happens, but it's never really spoken about or acknowledges in terms of uh, any sort of rule amendments. Um, 
I mean, it definitely goes on, doesn't it? Um, I guess it's more prominent when you can actually see it sit there on TV, especially in the Six Nations, uh, when you sort of see the, see the seconds go by. But I don't know, maybe just referees just don't like to officiate. Maybe they're too scared or unwilling to kind of get involved in any controversy about when exactly the sort of time started and, and whatnot, and they don't want to draw attention to themselves, which, you know, is probably the wrong attitude. But, I mean, maybe it's just a case of that. Maybe referees just are too scared or, or can't be bothered to sort of kind of enforce it, and it just kind of, just therefore, just sort of goes under the radar. But there's all this thing about speeding the game, but blah, blah, blah. But it's like in the last ten minutes of matches now, you never get a scrum that doesn't get reset three times because the easiest thing for a front row to do when they know the clock's ticking is just to stand up before the engagement or fall down straight away and get it reset and you see this time and time again when a team has their own put in and they've got a scrum and there's less than 10 minutes in the clock and they're marginally in the lead they, they just slow the clock down by every measure they can and when you've got the easy ability to stop the clock on tv or in professional sport why they're not stopping it i, I just don't understand really really annoying me um yeah i just as you say it's just not a case of it being imposed really isn't it and as i've said it, it seems to be one of these sort of things which everyone knows kind of happens and scrum's a good one as well that's another good example where you know that definitely does happen but no one seems to kind of sort of acknowledge that oh should, should this be addressed or should it be done about it it's just sort of brushed well, not perhaps purposely brushed under the carpet but you know we've, we've said it before just not not really acknowledged but yeah i think it would as you say it would probably be an easy fix as well because you've got so many cameras you've got so many clocks going all over the place it must be fairly easy to sort of just from when the referee signals that the, the player started or whatever it is or from the kick or when the kick's about to be taken that, that a clock can kind of can be sort of measured can't see why that can't be enforced and I think it should be I think you're right yeah I think that what you could do is you could say right the halves now for uh, 35 minutes instead of 40 but we're only going to have ball in play time kind of like they're doing basketball and then it would be quite simple then because you just have when the ball's in play fine and then players don't spend 15 minutes waddling over to a line out but I do think that then you run the risk of it becoming a bit like American football when there suddenly becomes absolutely no urgency between phases in play and they just run adverts or whatever I don't think we're quite good on that route but if you were to have a stop clock I guess unless the referee still actively encourages them to get a move on it could become even slower it just wouldn't be the frustration of time getting wasted of the actual playing time uh, I mean I suppose it's all kind of striking that balance between do you want the game to be speeded up by in in terms of policing that more um or do you kind of just want to let the game flow naturally and if that means sort of a bit of gamesmanship or whatever is that kind of the price of that um but i I guess you sort of have to find a a middle ground really with it yeah oh and then one final thing which um i think we should probably discuss which i've completely forgotten about up till now and i didn't mention at the start is the revelations about potential salary cap infringements again it all focuses around player rights and their pictures normally or their, their image the players image rights and whether that needs to be considered part of their salary it seems that the the angle being taken is that in football hmrc have deemed that when players have contractual parts of their club contracts stating that they are going to get a certain amount of money and basically waive their image rights then hmrc are deeming that as part of salary for tax purposes And therefore, logic would follow that the same rules should probably apply to rugby for tax purposes. And then it becomes whether, if they're being considered part of salary by HMRC, are they going to be considered part of salary by the RFU? And it doesn't sound a million miles away from 
the kind of disguised remuneration scheme that Mr. Ray at Saracens was um, peddling, albeit very, very different. But it's not beyond the realms of possibility that once again, look, we could be mired in the salary cap and all it has to what it has to offer. Yes, I mean, the thing with the salary cap is that in many ways, it's probably technically illegal because it's a restraint of trade. But because it's imposed naturally the way, of course, Saracens did it and other clubs are trying to do it as well in how do you circumnavigate that. And the way to do it is, well, it's, it's as Saracens did it, or as we're seeing here, which is very similar, in which you have the players set up their own private company. And then you have additional funds paid into that private company rather than to the players' direct banking account from, from the club um, and it, it, it does seem really similar I mean maybe it's, we're not talking about the same figures or the same amount of players um, <clears throat> but I think because of the salary cap you and clubs obviously the, the competition for clubs to sign the, you know, absolutely the, the as best top players as you can they have to find a way around it and this seems to be the way that they're trying to do what's kind of interesting I found my initial reaction was that after all the publicity about Saracens this seems very very similar and if you're the clubs that I believe it was Bristol Harlequins and Sale we've got you, to be not to liable ourselves here they haven't released any of the details of who it is or anything like that but it has to be noted that the images that I've seen and the pictures associated with the article in the various newspapers tend to be Bristol sales and Harlequins players. So if, we, if we're not going to directly point the finger, we can say that the newspapers are using images from certain clubs when they choose to illustrate the story. I see, yes. Well, I mean, I, I got it from the, the Telegraph article. It is the article that I'm getting my information from. What gets me is, is as I say, it was all very well publicised in terms of what Saracens did. Um, then do, do these clubs in question, do they not think that perhaps, you know, they will get caught? And it, it, for many ways, it's kind of the rank hypocrisy of it, because, you know, you had all these clubs saying, oh, it was terrible that Saracen Saracens did. You know, I think we've got to have the points social, we've got to relegate them and whatnot, where, where many of them seem to know full well that they're sort of doing a similar sort of thing, you know, sort of in the shadows. So it, it, it's, it's sort of the rank hypocrisy and sort of the obviousness of it that kind of gets me, because it, surely the, the lesson to be learned was that you can't really get away with it, and that's what they, they seem to be trying to do. Well, I think as long as there's restrictions upon people making money, there's always going to be people getting around it. I think it used to be pretty well known in certain in circles that um, certain Bath players quite often end up being some of the best paid groundsmen in the country after their careers ended and things like that and um, you don't know quite what's been going on behind the scenes or what's just a gentleman's agreement and what's not or what's contractual but um, I've spoken to play, uh, people that used to play for clubs like Richmond and London Scottish and back when it was an amateur game they would get their rail fares paid for them, they'd get, their, they'd get a load of cash in hand that was never declared and the RFU for a long time very much insisted it had to be purely amateur and all this was completely out of order. But they knew fine well what was going on. And then you had the the whole thing about Brian Moore, I think Will Carlin basically saying they're a load of old farts in the RFU. And then um, they got in trouble but suddenly became professional. And the game has changed due to professionalism and I think some of it's probably good, some of it's bad. But when you're restricting people's trade and effectively the Premiership Club's forming a cartel to drive down their employees' salaries, um, just imagine the... The headlines in the Guardian. If suddenly you had all your, I don't know, your fast food shops that formed a cartel to say we're not going to pay our fryers and McDonald's um, more than minimum wage, and they formed a, a semi-cartel to limit the the wages they were paid, uh, I think it's probably on very dodgy ground legally. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes on. But I think as long as they try and put these restrictions in place, there'll be clubs thinking of ways to get around them. But I think that 
overall, I think the salary cap does actually benefit the Falcons because I'm not sure we'd be able to compete with the, the likes of the aforementioned if we didn't have such a thing because, as we mentioned earlier, Mark Wilson, kind of our star player, as we said with England, he, he never gets in the limelight. He just gets on and does his job. His ears are turned inside out and he holds them together with bits of tape. He's not your sort of um, person that's going to start doing loads of advertising for, I don't know, like you've got Danny Kerr advertising deodorant at the minute and god-awful things like that. He's not that sort of player. He never will be. And if I'm honest, since the likes of Johnny Wilkinson left the Falcons, I'm not sure we're going to get that sort of player back in a hurry. Um, well, I mean, with regards to the Saracens thing, I think what always got me was the fact that instead of kind of challenging what or kind of defend what they did, they should have just challenged the salary cap in general because again I'm pretty certain it's not actually legal in terms of restraint of trade but I don't know I think with the salary cap in some ways it does help us because um, it, it, it kind of helps the, the bottom clubs or the, the clubs aren't well off kind of keep financially secure but I think I, I do generally think it should go in hand in hand if you do close off relegation I think you don't need the salary cap if you close off relegation because I think you can then afford to kind of spend money on players without the risk of, of your Yourself get relegated in the final, obviously, the final pitfalls of that. I think, in many ways, the salary cap and the threat of relegation for clubs like Falcons is a double whammy, actually, because it means that we can't, if, if we wanted to, spend big to, to, to kind of get out of the problem, to get out of relegation problem, for example. Where if there's no relegation problem anyway, that kind of removes that problem and you can sort of build up your finance, your finances in a, in a sort of responsible way but also have the capacity to buy marquee players which again may bring more money through gate receipts or better performances anyway um, It very much worries me when you say that Falcons should spend big to stay in the Premiership because we all know what the, the happens, you spend a lot of money on a player and they get injured straight away and the fact of the matter is that we make our money through two ways, you've got TV coverage and gate receipts TV coverage in rugby is nothing like it is in football. Gate receipts is the way you get in. And we've got capacity of 10,000. We're never going to be able to afford this, the wage bills of these players. We're never going to be afford, able to afford major transfers. And I think that if the salary cap gets abolished, all you'll do is you'll get a load of businessmen in various parts of the country that aren't the northeast, kind of doing what um, was it John Hall did back in the 90s when we kind of won the league through doing exactly what I'm saying shouldn't be allowed. So... I think you've only got to look at London Welsh to, to realise that it may well not be necessarily the wisest idea to, to do away with the salary cap because you'll just end up with a load of clubs going bankrupt. But, but then I suppose, how do you as a club kind of take it to the next level? So you're seeing the likes of Bristol, whatever, London Irish and, and Sale, that's, they've obviously gone up the next level. These are all teams which have relegated or near the bottom of the league with us. And of course now, the other end of the table, obviously competing for the, for the league title, in reality, is that not the only the way to, to do it? Um, that's why I, I do think the sort of negatives and positives to, to the, the argument, perhaps. Or you can see in terms of the French clubs, how you know a lot of them just come out of nowhere and because they are allowed to have mega-rich owners in to spend huge amounts of money. And does that not just bring more money to the game, improving the game anyway? But I suppose it's a different argument entirely. But as I say, it's all... I think there are positives and negatives for club, clubs like the Falcons with regards to, you know, your, your salary cap. Right, so if we just go to the rest of the Premiership scores this weekend, on Friday night, Bristol constantly put away Wasps 37 points to 20. Um, then on Saturday... Um, at lunchtime, obviously, we had our poor performance where we lost 19.38 to Bath. Exeter scraped at home against uh, Harlequins, 21 points to 20. Um, Northampton similarly against Sale, 17.14. Interesting that Sale lost after playing so well the last few weeks. 
And then Gloucester once again got a bonus point in their defeat, 14 point to 20, at home to Leicester. Sunday, today, which is when we're recording it, uh, London Irish beat Worcester, 20 points to 17. Something that's just quite amusing that I've just kind of realised when I've been reading these out is that, of course, it's the Falcons that end up with the COVID cancellations, basically, weeks after any other club got COVID cancellations, and there's been none since. So I wonder whether that's going to be... One of those ironic things that we were the last club to end up with the uh, the COVID cancellations. In the Six Nations yesterday, we had Italy getting trounced by Wales, 7 points to 48. And then obviously, as we mentioned, England beating France, 23 points to 20. Scotland losing 24 points to 27 due to that late penalty from Johnny Sexton, which we discussed. It's quite funny, I was looking at this yesterday, because there was all the press about how wonderful England were after we beat Italy the other week. But if you look at England's score against Italy, it's the worst out of all of the teams that have played Italy thus far. By a reasonable margin, we've scored the fewest and conceded the most against them. Quite funny, really, that the, the press hyped up all that huge victory and all the rest of it when, if we're quite honest, we played relatively poorly and the, the points we did get were fortuitous in certain respects. If we look at the Premiership table, um, as we mentioned earlier, gaps are beginning to open up now. Bristol are seven points clear at the top, 51 points. Um, extra chasing them with... 44, then Harlequins on 39 and Sale on 37, so it really is opening up now. There's, the next place is 5th with Northampton and London Irish on 35, so you've now got 16 points between 5th and 1st, so I think um, the chase and pack have well and truly dropped off now. Um, you've then got Leicester on 32, us and Bath both have 29, so that makes us an 8th place joint on points, but um, ahead of Bath on points difference. Wasps have got 26 and then Gloucester and Worcester are still chasing with 20 and 17 respectively. Looks like Worcester have got a bit of work to do but like we say there's these gaps opening up but they're not unassailable anywhere and I think that a couple of wins or a couple of losses really will propel us up or down the table at a rate of knots. Um, Difficult to draw too much from it but Aside from Worcester, our attack is the worst in the league. But our defence is the third best now, um, only worse than Bristol and Exeter. So although we shipped a load of points to the weekend, it's still quite encouraging. But then we didn't play a few games because of COVID. So how much can you read into that or how much can't you? I'm not, not so sure. So we've ended up talking for quite a long time this episode when we've had a terrible performance. I guess there's a bit of other stuff to discuss as well. Um, hopefully we'll be in slightly cheerier mood next weekend. But... Um, Fingers crossed, touch wood, C2 magpies, all the rest of it. So, thanks for listening. It's goodbye from me. Bye, everyone.